Brothers and sisters, if you will, take your Bibles and open them to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 14. Luke chapter 14, and our text this morning will be found in verse 25 through verse 33. Verse 25 through 33. And out of love for the Lord and His Word, would you stand with me as I read this portion of the Gospel of Luke and then pray and ask the Lord's blessing upon us. Let's read this word. And now large crowds were going along with him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother, and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which one of you, when he wants to build a tower, does not first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who observe it begin to ridicule him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, when he sets out to meet another king in battle? will not first sit down and consider whether he is strong enough with 10,000 to encounter one coming against him with 20,000. Or else, while the other is still far away, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So then, none of you can be my disciple who does not give up all his own possessions. Let's pray. And Father, as we have heard these words with our ears, impress them upon our minds, impress these words upon our hearts, may we consider the greatest of questions this morning. Who are the disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ? And may we hear, O Lord, with ears, that are saving years. And may we understand with a saving understanding the great cost of discipleship. And all of God's people said, Amen. You may be seated. My plan, brothers and sisters, is to take the next several weeks, if not the next month or two, and preach a series of topical sermons addressing the gospel the theme of the gospel and the claims the gospel have has upon those who believe in Christ and what it means to be a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so I look forward to spending the next several Sundays addressing this most important topic with you and as a body. There's no greater question that a person can ask Even here this morning, as we find ourselves followers or at least confessors of Christ, at least openly following Christ this morning and coming and gathering together to worship Him, to sing His praises and to acknowledge that there is some 
effort given to following after Jesus Christ. We need to consider this morning the questions Jesus is posing to the people before Him in His day and for us in our day. What does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus Christ? What does it mean to be a a true and real follower of Christ in a day and age when, like them in His day, we too are greatly influenced and shaped by our own culture and surroundings, aren't we? We too are shaped by our version or by our likes and dislikes, our entertainment, our education, our political philosophies. How we see and view this life. Who are our influences? Who do we listen to? Who do we want to be like? And all of that, all of that has a tremendous impact on how we follow after Christ. And that's what Christ is doing in this passage of Scripture. He's addressing those cultural norms of his day he's addressing the crowds around the crowd around him he's addressing those common habits and practices that many in his day had given themselves over to and and feeling good about doing so and Christ recognizing the danger that they are in thinking that they are okay with God and they are not okay with I certainly see, even in our own day, the need for great consideration of what it means to follow Christ in our day. Every generation, every group must address this question. And it doesn't matter if you live in America, it doesn't matter where you have a, the influence of materialism and many other um, philosophies of life. It doesn't matter if you live in a country that's dominated with Muslim influence or Hindu influence. Everyone must address and ask and consider what is being taught here in these words of Christ and that is who is the real and true follower of Jesus the first thing that I want us to do this morning that as we look and consider the cost of discipleship the cost of discipleship is first of all recognizing the occasion recognizing the context of these words recognizing Uh, the environment in which the Lord Jesus Christ sought to bring this teaching to the people. Notice there in verse 25, Luke writes and tells us that it was the moment when there were large crowds going along with Him. Large crowds going along with Him. This is... More than likely the third year of the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he is on his way to Jerusalem to his crucifixion. He is on the way to Calvary. And along the way, 
going to the great Passover feast in Jerusalem, the crowds were coming, they were making their own journey to Jerusalem to participate in the Passover feast. And along the way, as they found themselves in the company and presence of this great renowned teacher, Jesus, they were following him as he made his way to Jerusalem. I'm sure his reputation had preceded him. I'm sure that by that time, the Lord Jesus is making this final ascent to Jerusalem to offer Himself as a sacrifice for many. His reputation had spread all over the region and people wanted to hear this great teacher teach. His miracles had made their way in many places and they wanted to see the man that turned the the small loaves and fishes into a great amount to feed thousands of people. Who is this man that teaches like no other? Who is this man that causes a few fish and a few pieces of bread to feed thousands. Who is this man that causes the lame to walk? The blind to see? Who is this man that speaks the name of the dead? And the dead raises from the grave. Who is he? You can imagine the multitudes following Jesus. You can imagine the curiosity. You can imagine all of the various conversations going on all around Jesus and the disciples. You can can see it in your mind's eye, can't you? How people would talk about this teacher. How they would talk about his teaching. How it's different than the Pharisees and the Sadducees. How it's so different than than the common religious of the day. He speaks words we have not heard in a long time or ever. He comes condemning all of this religiosity today. He comes with this boldness and he comes confronting those leaders who challenge him publicly. He comes putting them in their place. We want to talk to this man. We want to hear this man teach. And you would think, brothers and sisters, you would just think that here are the multitudes of the crowds. It would be something today that we would relish and take great delight in. But what does Jesus do? Jesus takes the opportunity to turn to the crowds and challenge them. He turns to the crowd and he confronts them with what real discipleship is. He confronts them with what it means to really and truly follow after Him. I'm sure they felt real good about themselves to be in His company. To be part of the group. To be part of the entourage that is going up to Jerusalem to the Holy Feast. I'm sure they felt in some ways very sacred. And yet... And all of these ideas that permeated the crowds, none of those ideas are saving to any soul. 
They may have felt good about being in his presence, but that feeling could not save them. They may have thought in that of themselves being intellectuals and contemplating truly this great philosopher, Jesus. Yes, I think he's correct and accurate in his moral assessments of the Pharisees. That's what I've been saying for years, honey. You haven't been listening to me. I think he's correct. And they, they pride themselves in their intellect, yet their intellect will not save them. And then there are their moralists who enjoyed being in the presence of so many good people. We don't have to worry about the bad people out there. We are good people here. We want to treat each other kindly. We want to do good things. We want to bake cookies for each other. I mean, we want to be in each other's presence. And they were marvelous. They wanted to just do good things. And Jesus says, oh, you are not going to heaven either. Something much more than that. Much more glorious than that. And that's what we're going to talk about. That's what we're going to consider this morning. Think about today, oh, if this church right here was busting out the seams and we had every chair out and every, every chair had a person sitting in it and there was persons, persons and families out in the hallway. I mean, they were, we just had their ears to the door. The doors were open and we had people standing outside. We say, oh, what success we're having. Oh, what good are we doing here? Look at all the people. Look at everyone. Just look, listen to the hum and the buzz of all the multitudes trying to get in our church. We are doing something good. The Lord's blessing us. And yet, that's the very occasion. And Jesus says, well, let me tell you what a true disciple is. And if you're not this, you are not my disciple. Thousands and tens of thousands of people are gathering in church today. And the sad truth about it is, brothers and sisters, for many, many reasons that are not, that are not pleasing to God. Are you hearing me? There's no difference. There's not one difference between the crowd that surrounds Jesus in this teaching and the crowds, the crowds that fill the churches today. Some like the environment of the church like I've already mentioned. They like the moral aspect of the church, but they don't, they don't love the righteousness of Christ. They want to be good people. They like their righteousness. They're not sinners, great sinners. They're good people and they like being with good people. But I will tell you, that the moralist will stand before God, and man, woman, whoever, and will be found dirty. Dirty and filthy with their own sins because any righteousness outside of Christ's righteousness is filthy rags. Oh, I like the people. They're like me. They're good, salt of the earth type. That's what I like. They're dependable. They work hard. No nonsense. Mature. And I like being around them. But they don't love Christ. They don't care about Christ. 
They care more about the relationships in the church than they do about the Savior and the head of the church. No brothers. The crowds surrounded the Lord Jesus Christ. And Jesus takes the opportunity to tell the truth. To teach them the gospel. To explain to them what a true and real disciple is. In this occasion, we see the Lord Jesus teaching in a way that demands a decision. Okay? That the Lord Jesus is not just throwing out there some doctrine. He's not just scattering the seed of teaching and just hoping it does its work. He's not doing that at all. He's teaching in a way that is demanding a decision and a choice from those who hear Him. There's no neutral ground in this teaching of Jesus Christ. Make a decision. It's reminiscent of Joshua, isn't it? You think about Joshua chapter 24 verses 15 and 16, uh, 15, 14 and 15. When Joshua stands before the people he's as an aged leader and ruler of the people of God. And he stands there and he looks at the multitude of Israel and says, Now therefore fear the Lord and serve Him in sincerity. And in faithfulness, put away the gods that your father served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve. Whether the gods of your father served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord choice a decision and we will have to make that decision today you and I and everyone who listens to this message will need to make a choice will need to make a decision on whom we will serve on what we will follow on what we will listen to And what we will consider, how we shall consider, how shall we calculate, how shall we come to the right decision. Let's look at the teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ. He turns to the crowd. He addresses the crowd around him. And in verse 26, notice when what he does. He says, now if anyone comes to me. Now all of them had come to him and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters. Yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Those are staggering words. Those are hard words. We see here a a figure of speech called an, an extreme... It's a string, an extreme comparison, if you will, that's being made. Jesus is using a mechanism that causes us to first gasp with shock and then consider what he is saying. And it may be related, and I think so, look back up in the context, look up, if you will, in this parable 
of this feast. Look at, um, well, back up at verse, let's see here. Where they are offering the excuse. Look at verse 16. Let me just read it. He says, but when he said to him, now this is in a parable, the teaching of the Lord Jesus. He says, if a man said to him, but he said to him, a man was giving a big dinner and he invited many. And at the dinner hour, he sent his slave to say to those who had been invited, come for everything is ready now. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first one said to him, I bought a piece of land and I need to go out and look at it. Please consider me excused. Verse 19. Another one said, I have bought five yoke of oxen and I am going to try them out. Please consider me excused. And another one said, I've married a wife. And for that reason, I cannot come. And the slave came back and reported to his master. And then the head of the household became angry and said to his slave, Go out at once into the streets and lanes of the city and bring in here the poor, crippled and blind and lame. I think Jesus is addressing in a particular way the hearts of the people who are following him after giving the parable of these excuses that people offer not to serve God, not to follow after him, to say, if you love, if a man comes to me and he does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, and yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. He's not contradicting the fifth commandment that says, honor your father and mother. He's using an exaggerated form, a metaphor of teaching so that we might again consider what is he about to say next. Perfect teacher teaching the crowds before him perfectly. Shocked at the idea that one would have to hate the nearest and dearest in their, in their lives to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. Notice the Next illustration that Jesus gives here. And we're going to look at these in more detail as I cover these parables themselves. He says, now which one of you who wants to build a tower does not first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it? Notice there the Lord Jesus says, who, who begins a work and not finishes it? Who begins following after me and doesn't consider the consequences? It doesn't consider the, the hardships. It doesn't consider what it will cost that person, that family to follow after me in this day and time. Just as they were to consider their relations and not put one person above Christ. They were now to consider all their actions, the things and decisions they would make in daily life, like building a tower. Can I complete it? Is this something that I can do? Is this something that I will finish? Brothers and sisters, the Lord Jesus says, no man that comes after me, lest he finish the race. Finish the race is worthy of me. 
He puts his hand to the plow and he looks back. He's not worthy of me. What does Jesus want us to do? He not only wants us to consider our nearest and dearest relations, He wants us to calculate. He wants us to count. It's a mathematical term. Calculate. Figure it out. Sit down with pen and paper. Notice what He says. What does the guy do? He must sit down to calculate it. There's effort being made. There's not a greater decision in your life than finishing the race. Not a greater sin. There's not a greater. Listen, brothers and sisters, how often does the multitude spend more time getting ready for work than they do worship? Spend more time working on getting an advancement in their career than growing up in Christ. How much? How often does that describe us? And the Lord Jesus teaches us here that we must sit down and we must count. We must calculate. We must do the math. We must put effort into our calculations and assessments to make sure we can finish what we start. I want you to think about The discouragements. People are to their neighbors. Oh, they are on so much fire for Christ. They come to Christ and they want everybody around them to know they come to Christ. And they want to know that they believe in Jesus. And they want to know that they're going to church. And they want to know that they're having a good time in church. And all of these things. And they want to tell everybody about it. And that's good for about two or three years. Then all of a sudden, they are back to their old ways. What do their neighbors do? They ridicule. Notice what the outcome is. He says, otherwise when he lays, has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who observe it begin to ridicule him. They talk behind his back. Saying this man began to build and was not able to finish. Oh, this man started some. Oh, man, you couldn't even talk to him several years ago. All he wanted to talk to you was about Jesus and how Jesus saved him from his, from his sickness and his illness and all of these various things. Oh, how Jesus pulled him out of the, the slum of life and, 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 and did all of these wonderful things. And now, and now you would never know he ever was a Christian or she was ever a Christian. And people take note of it. People see it. They recognize it. They don't forget. They don't forget that you were once cussing up a storm and then you were so holier than thou in your speech and confronting everybody around you about their own cussing and then all of a sudden you find yourselves out there using the same language again. They take note of it. He gives us another illustration. 
Not only, brothers and sisters, must we consider our nearest and dearest relations and we must calculate our very actions. Notice verse 31, we must also deliberately counsel ourselves about every decision we make. Verse 31, or what king when he sets out to meet another king in battle will not first sit down and consider whether he is strong enough with 10,000 to encounter the one coming against him with 20,000. Notice again, what does the Lord Jesus teach us here? That this king, in the business of being a king, does not just go haphazardly into battle with a few men against many men without first doing what? Considering the outcome of this battle. Considering the outcome of it. He sits down, again, notice, effort, deliberate effort being made to sit down taking the time. To deliberate in his own heart and mind. Can I finish what I start? Can I win this battle? Can I take this small band of men and defeat a much stronger force? Can I do it? What's it going to cost me? How often do we run headlong into temptations and into trials of life and not consider our actions? And not count and not deliberate within our own hearts and with our own minds what? What decisions I need to make and how will it affect me and what will it cost me? If I put my hands to this kind of work and labor, where will it take me? Oh, we are so short-sighted, aren't we, brothers and sisters? We live for the moment. And we're taught this. It's all around us. All that matters is today. All that matters is right now. Who cares about yesterday? Who cares about tomorrow? All you have is today. And yet, how can you make the right decisions if you believe that? How should you not consider the past? How should you not consider those who have gone before you and made those similar decisions? And what was the outcome? What did it cost them? Where did they end up? If I follow this group of people, where would it take me? If I follow this line of doctrine and teaching, where will it take me? If I find myself in a group of people that doesn't believe in any kind of righteous living after coming to the Lord Jesus Christ, where is it going to take? Where is it going to take me? Or if I attach myself to a group of people that think, oh, if I just obey these few rules, I'm going to be okay. Where is it going to take me? Oh, you may highlight your own obedience. You may highlight your own obedience and on that great day of judgment, you may stand before God and hear, I don't know you. I don't know you. So you don't have my righteousness. Where does our decisions Take us. 
Does it bring us closer to the kingdom of heaven? Does it help the kingdom of God? Is it going to help me in my sanctification? Is it going to aid me in my family's walk with the Lord? Or is it going to hinder? Is it going to hurt? Is it going to be a stumbling block after stumbling block in the kingdom of God? See, brothers and sisters, in these three illustrations, we are called upon to consider, to count, and to counsel ourselves with what it means to be a follower and a disciple of Jesus Christ. Let's consider, let's consider that first parable again. The Lord Jesus Christ is calling upon us to consider our nearest and dearest relations. He's calling us to consider those things that are the most precious to us. When we do this, we must, con- we must think about the value of our souls, right? The value of our souls. Who here is willing to give up their soul for their loved one? Follow after your husband. And lose your soul. Follow after your wife. Lose your soul. Follow your children. Lose your soul. Jesus is obviously addressing and dealing with those people that family is everything. Friendships are everything. And nothing else really matters. Because what matters is the goodness of this life in all of these relationships. But the Lord Jesus tells us in Matthew 10, I tell you now, I didn't come to bring peace. I came to bring the sword. And if any of you follow after father and mother, son and daughter, and love them more than you love me, you are not worthy of me. Lord Jesus is addressing, and and brothers and sisters, dealing with this idea that if there is any relationship in our lives that causes us to, to lessen our zeal, our love... For Christ, we need to address it biblically. We need to deal with it. We need to be honest about it. We need to confront it and not act as if it is just as equal as Christ to us. Right? That's why we must be careful about who we marry. That's why we must be careful about how we raise our children. That's why we must be careful about how we, we fellowship and w- wives and husbands love each other. That's why we must be careful about our friendships, right? People we allow to come into our inner circle and have a great impact and influence upon our lives. What happens when it becomes very, um, very difficult to maintain a friendship and yet serve the Lord unfettered? Well, don't be so zealous. Don't be so zealous for Christ. You embarrass me. Tone it down a little bit. He knows your heart. Tone it down. Children often want to diminish the spiritual fervor of parents when they come to Christ. 
Mom and dad are embarrassing to me. They embarrass us. Now they want to talk to me and my friends about Jesus. Can you stop it? Can you not do that anymore? You see, Jesus is calling us to make decisions. He really is calling us. Are you going to love your wife, your husband, your friends? Are you going to love your children? Are you going to love your father and mother more than me? Consider the value. Listen to me. Consider this as you consider your relationships in nearest and dearest. Who before the foundation of the world covenanted to lay down his life for a ransom of many? Who decided to leave glory and the majesty of heaven Who decided to lay aside the worship of angelic hosts? Who decided to lay aside the glorious worship he deserved to be robed in human flesh, incarnate in man's body, born in a manger? Who do you know, beloved, who left glory Born in a manger, lived an obscure life, running from people that wanted to kill him, despised and hated by his own brothers, raised up at 30 years old to begin a ministry of serving others and not himself. Who do you know, beloved, who values you more than the one who laid down on the cross? Who made that trip to Golgotha? Who prayed to his father to stay the course and sweat, as it were, drops of blood? Who do you know who was nailed to a tree for you? was buried in a tomb. Who do you know, beloved, who has satisfied the wrath of God on your behalf? Who do you know? Because it can't be father. It can't be mother. It can't be wife. It can't be husband. It can't be son or daughter or children or parents. It can be none other than Christ. That's what you need to consider in making the decision this morning. Who are you going to follow? The philosophies of men and the good relationships of others are the one who laid down his life so that you can have eternal fellowship with him forever. Make a choice. Who are you going to pick? Secondly, we must count. We must consider. What must we consider? We must consider what it going, what's it going to cost us to follow Jesus. And I'm not talking about we buying or purchasing our salvation. That's not what I'm talking about. That's a free gift of God. That's the blood of Christ that cleanses us from all sin. I'm talking about that that the mindset that we must bring as we follow after our Savior. What is it going to cost me? 
Salvation is free. But it is costly to believe in Christ. What is it going to cost us? Well, let's just think about a few things that J.C. Ryle brings to bear and to light upon this passage of Scripture. The first thing that I think, and wisely so, he brings out is, first of all, it's going to cost you your own self-righteousness. See, your morality and righteousness are incompatible with Christ. Hmm. See, you can't be good people and expect to be saved. Sick people come to Christ. Infirmed, infected, diseased, lame and blind and ugly people come to Christ. Our pride, our self-worth, you know, that's what we hear all around us, right? Yes, Christ valued us and come and gave himself for us and he come to redeem us. But brothers and sisters, make no mistake about it. There is nothing we have to offer him as a payment for our salvation. I think the church is filled with a lot of good people, not saved people. They're filled with a lot of moralists, but not, a, not with a lot of people that love Jesus. There's a difference. We must give up our self-righteousness. Our righteousness cannot be mixed with the righteousness of Jesus and we be saved. We must solely and completely give up on our goodness whatsoever and rest and trust in Christ's righteousness alone to be saved. And to be a disciple of Jesus, we must recognize it's all by His righteousness. His righteousness. I have nothing to offer. I have nothing to offer. Christ, I have nothing to offer. God, I have nothing to offer. The church, I have nothing. I want Christ's righteousness. I want to be clothed in Christ's righteousness. I want His righteousness to be my righteousness. The second thing we must be willing to give up, brothers and sisters, is our sins. We must be willing to give up our pride and our arrogance and all of our goodness and oh, all the good things we do. We must, like the Apostle Paul, say, oh, how I count all as garbage but to know Christ. And now we must give up our sins. You think the Lord Jesus, think about it. Contemplate this with me for a second. You mean the Lord Jesus laid aside His majesty and His glory and the worship of angelic hosts and beings and He come to be incarnated in human flesh. He come to live an obscure life. He come to be ridiculed, mocked, and He come to lay down His life. He come to give up His life so that you and I could continue sinning. You mean He came to forgive us of our sins so that we could sin more and more and more? Do you think that? Do you think Christ did all of that? 
so that we could continue our love affair with lusts and passions and ideologies and philosophies that have that are that are harmful and offensive to Christ you think that you may not think that beloved and you would say, no, 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 I do not think that. No, I don't even want my mind to dwell on such a thing. I cannot even bring myself to think about it. And yet, do we live like it? Do we live like it? We must give up, brothers and sisters, the practice of sin. And what do I mean by that? Here's what I mean. I mean you must be a Romans 7 Christian you got to fight sin. And yes, you're going to fall into sin. Yes, you're going to find yourself numb or you're going to find yourself cold to Christ at times. You're going to find yourself not wanting to read your Bible. You're going to find yourself not wanting to worship God. You're going to find yourself not wanting to be kind to your wife, your husband, your children. You're going to find yourself not wanting to die to self. But you know you must. And you want to. And you know you're a sinner. And you know your only hope is not your goodness. It's the blood of, it's the continuing cleansing blood of Jesus. That's the only thing. You got to give up your sin. What does that mean? You got to give up your love for sin. You must, brothers and sisters, I want to ask you are you struggling? If you struggle, Oh, the disciple of Jesus struggles with sin. Struggles with sin. Thirdly, you must give up the love of ease. The love of ease. Oh, what an idol in our own day. What an idol in our own day. I mean, in Africa, we have, we have families that will walk for hours to go to church. And we can't drive air-conditioned vehicles more than 10 minutes to go to a good church. We're too soft to follow Christ. And Christ says, you've got to give up the ease of this life. You've got to be willing to fight the battles. You've got to be willing to take the hard, make the hard choices. You've got to be willing to humble yourself. You've got to be willing to die to self. You've got to be like a soldier ready to go to battle. You've got to be like a farmer who sows his seed and then with expectation tills the ground, fertilizes the soil, waters the soil, wanting that crop to come up and bear fruit. You've got to work. Oh, but we don't want to work. Christ says, if you don't want to work, you can be my disciple. You've got to put your hands to the plow. You can't look back. You can't make excuses. There's always something else to do. The Christian life, beloved, is a life of sacrifice and service, isn't it? Isn't it? And yet, so often, we make it all about ourselves. We make it all about us. We make it about all about our decisions. We make it all about the things we like. And that's not a disciple of Jesus Christ. You have to give up the ease of this life. I'll go tell the apostles. 
I mean, think about it. Oh, you're working way too hard. Paul, take a break. Paul, you just, you, 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 you got to settle down some. God is sovereign, and I know you want to preach the gospel to every living creature on heaven and earth, but Paul, God is sovereign. They're going to be okay. Just easy, son, easy. Simmer down a little bit. Take a vacation. Don't worry about the church. It'll take care of itself. It's like... J.C. Ryle said this. He said, he must take pains and trouble if he means to run a successful race toward heaven. He must take pains and trouble. He must understand. You know, if you're running a marathon, guess what? Your leg's going to start hurting. Your side's going to start hurting. In your mind, you know what you think? Oh, if I just stop, I'm going to quit hurting. If I just quit, it's going to stop. The pain's going to go away. If I give up, it's over. Just give up. He must watch daily and stand on guard like a soldier on enemy ground. He must take heed to his behavior every hour of the day in every company, in every place, whether public or private, among strangers as well as at home. He must be careful over his time, his tongue, his temper, his thoughts, his imaginations, his motive, his conduct. In every relation of life, he must be diligent about his prayers, Bible reading, his use of Sunday. And the means of grace. It, this sounds hard. For there is nothing we naturally dislike so much as trouble. Because our flesh likes easy, peasy, and ease. Don't make it difficult. Don't make me think. And yet, what is the Lord Jesus doing in all of these illustrations? What is He calling upon? What natural human faculty is He calling upon? He's not calling upon your emotions. He's calling upon your mind. Consider. Calculate. Think. Ponder these things. And fourthly, and the last thing we'll consider this morning is what it must cost us, brothers and sisters, it must cost us the favor of this world. Brothers and sisters, you cannot be the disciple of Jesus Christ and a lover of this world. Verse 33, so then none of you can be my disciples who does not give up all his possessions. You know what a fanatic is don't you you know what a fanatic is right a fanatic is a fan a fan what are you a fan of entertainment football sports working out eating what are you a fan of See, it's so polite to be a fan of anything in our day and time but of Christ. You can be a fan of, I can, I could, I could come with a collegiate tie. I could dress my car up in all kinds of collegiate colors. I could look, I could put flags outside our house. I could even, I could put stickers on my computer 
And no one ever questioned it. No one ever questioned it. But go to live for Christ in a way described in these verses. The giving up of all things for Christ and you will be, you will be the target of ridicule. Not by unbelievers. They already think the church is crazy. By church members. By church members. What's the conclusion? Cost is high, isn't it? The cost is high. The soul is valuable. And Christ came to give Himself a ransom for many that He would lay down His life, that He would shed His blood, that He would secure for those who believe and trust in Him eternal and everlasting life. Make a choice. Make a choice this morning. And choose Christ. Choose the one who is the true lover of your soul even more than you are. Even more than you are. Even more than I am. Because, beloved, we will not hardly pick up our Bible sometimes and read it to feed our own soul. Yet Christ left heaven and came all the way to earth and was born of a virgin, born as a child. Born under that obscurity all the way to that hillside called Golgotha where he laid down his life. Where he was nailed to the cross. He did that to save souls. What are you willing to give up? What stands between you and this blessed Savior, beloved? What stands between you and the blessed abode of heaven where He will be for an eternity? What stands before you right now? What is it that you are not willing to give up for Christ? What is it? Is it a person? Is it a, is it a, a, a habit? An action? An idea? What is it? Oh, beloved, let us value ourselves. Let us, yeah. This is not self esteem talking, but listen to me very carefully. Let us value our souls in eternity to the teaching of Scripture. Christ did not come to save junk. He came to save that which is lost. He came to save sinners made and fallen. Made in the image of God. Made in the image of God. He came to save sinners made in the image of God who have fallen into sin and can no way save themselves. There's nothing we can do to save ourselves. There's no group to be a member of to save ourselves. There's no moral duties we can perform to save ourselves. We cannot read our Bibles enough. We cannot pray enough. We cannot catechize ourselves enough. We cannot do good enough. We cannot save ourselves. It is only by the sacrifice and blood of Christ. And if, and if that is ours, 
we shall follow the Lord Jesus Christ. If that is ours, and we truly know it, and our minds have, been, have wrestled with it and grappled with it, if we truly know it, we'll give up all things for it. That's the outcome of the teaching. Guess what? Christ doesn't say, meet me halfway. Christ doesn't say, meet me halfway. Consider half of these things and we'll, call, we'll grade it on the curve. That's not what he says. He says, you must do it all or you can't be my disciple. And the only way, brothers and sisters, is to have that beauty, that beautiful vision of who Christ is, who he is. Who's the one teaching? Who's the one teaching these words? Yes, he is rebuking, and yes, he is condemning easy believism, and yes, he is condemning easy faith. Yes, he is condemning moralism. Yes, he is condemning all these things that men and women and families take great pride in. And yet he's the very one who says, I will lay down my life for you. Believe and trust in me. Follow me. Be my disciple. And all these things are yours. But you've got to be willing to give it all up for him. Let's pray.